the currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Good evening and welcome to The Currency. I'm Nick Bullman. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be examining some of the current international economic, business and geopolitical issues and their impact on the world's markets. If you want to contact the show, you can do so by emailing thecurrency at newstalk.ie or tweet us at thecurrencynt. On this week's show, The Great Escape. Has the massive expansion of the US dollar's monetary base created a quantum shift in market dynamics? I'll be speaking to one leading US investor. War of words. Will recent G20 tensions between the US and China lead to a greater rift between these two superpowers? We'll hear the views of a senior executive in Hong Kong. Plus, taking a stand on banking morals. I'll be joined by Dame Alison Carnworth, chairman of Land Securities PLC and former non-executive director at Barclays Bank on the stand she took over excessive banker pay. But first, recent political upheaval in Ukraine has exposed existing instabilities in East-West relations, offering the potential for a protracted Cold War-style political standoff. The Ukraine sits uncomfortably in the middle of an east-west no-man's land, on the one hand seeking to appease Russia, and on the other reaching out for euro loans to avoid economic collapse. Joining me to make sense of the current impasse is David Galbraith, Professor of International Security at the University of Bath. Professor Galbraith, thanks very much for joining us this evening. Can you bring us up to speed with the current situation in the Ukraine as you see it? Uh, the current situation in Ukraine is uh, pretty much focused on the future of Crimea and what that's going to say about the larger um, larger sustainability or the national or territorial integrity of Ukraine. And in many ways, um, and even going back to the Crimean War, uh, that's always been the case, uh, really, that, um, that international focus and uh, the future of the region was predicated on the, on the future of Crimea. And I think what's particularly interesting for, um, for, for the situation that we have ourselves now in terms of the political stalemate in Kiev, um, the, uh, the international attention um, the, and, and possible intervention in the case of uh, the Russian Federation, uh, is that uh, we're in a, in a particular precarious position to where we could go in several different directions. Yes, it seems to be a very fluid situation, but what do you think Putin's options are and what do you think Russia's likely reaction is going to be? Great question. I mean, that's that that is the fundamental question that everybody would like to know. Um, and in terms of, and, and I'm not even sure that um, that the Russian Federation, you know, Putin and his administration actually know that question uh, as of yet. I, I, we know one thing for certain, and that is is that uh, Putin is unlikely to do or, or to allow anything that would jeopardize or threaten uh, the location uh, of the Black Sea Fleet in Crimea. I, I think that's fundamental. The second thing is I think that um, 
he's unlikely to allow anything that would be uh, economically um, uh, difficult for Russia. And you could imagine that this has a lot to do with pipelines, um, in particular servicing uh, southeastern Europe uh, from Russia. Um, you could imagine it uh, in terms of uh, larger um, uh, trade and currency unions of which Ukraine and, and Belarus and, and Russia share. Um, so you would imagine that those things are, in a sense, kind of firm on the table. But beyond that, we're, we're not quite sure where we would see uh, uh, Putin behaving. And, and I think that's something that that myself and, and, and a colleague um, at Janet's uh, Management University was largely along the lines that you, we could very much see this as a, a as another Kosovo situation, to where you're you're working your way towards uh, almost the de facto recognition of an independent, or or even you know which would probably be more likely than actually it becoming a part of Russia. You can imagine an independent, uh, much in the same way of, as Kosovo uh, is not part mm. of Albania. It's an independent Albanian state, if you will, and so you can imagine something very similar, and and we. We argued that essentially that this was this was a a bad outcome for everyone. It's a suboptimal outcome for every, for everyone. That essentially, you know, that that what Russia wants is stability and, and in a sense, none, um, uh, no challenges to the Black Sea Fleet. Uh, what Ukraine wants is for a very stable region. Ukraine produces a lot of money. It also takes a lot of money because there's a lot of corruption and organized crime in Crimea, located in Crimea. But needless to say, it's a very very important part to the southern economy in, in Ukraine. So, you know, everybody would like it for it to remain the same, but that seems like that's going to be impossible. It's very important, looking at it from the Ukrainian perspective, that they manage to play both sides, that they keep a Western view, but also maintain relationships with Russia. Is that going to be possible? Uh, most definitely it is possible. I mean, and to give you an example, um, that's essentially what the Baltic states have done and, and what other states have done uh, as they've slowly uh, moved uh, both politically and, you know, if you would say almost socially and economically uh, towards the um, to, towards the West or towards Europe. Uh, you get an idea that if you look in sense at trade figures, you will see that they still have a very or they had a very strong uh, orientation towards Russia. Uh, and, of course, those are traditional trade links, and you would imagine that it would work like that and not change overnight. And so the thing is, is that you can talk in one direction and, and walk in the other direction at the same time, and, and that seems to be perfectly doable. I think the real question is going to be whether or not that's going to be enough for the people within Ukraine, because you have this distinct separation between you know, those who want some type of political change in Ukraine and those who are essentially um, um, holders of the power, the economic power in Ukraine, uh, who have interest essentially in either making it more Western or less Western in this case. And, and this means that um, as you have these um, uh, very important economic figures, which you know we ordinarily refer to as oligarchs, they ha would have an impact on on, on, on kind of the, the inability to Ukraine, for Ukraine to make a very kind of firm decision of how it would balance these two. And so you're always going to have this tension that perhaps didn't exist in, in other former Soviet states uh, in the same way. Can this escalate into a bigger issue? And what impact can the EU and the USA have on the situation? And will that bring them into direct conflict with Russia? 
You could imagine that it would have a, a very important role or, or impact on the EU itself. Um, EU member states share borders with Ukraine. I'm thinking about uh, Hungary in particular, but also um, um, there's you know the Baltic states in Poland and in the region. Um, you also have um, um, Moldovans or, or Romanians, uh, in other words, living in uh, in the West uh, as well as a large Hungarian population. Uh, and so there's a lot of interest in in, in uh, Ukraine, not only uh, geopolitically, not only within a tussle, say between, you know, the EU and Russia, or between the U.S. and Russia, but but there, but there are, but there are other reasons that you can imagine that population flows, disruption to trade, and things like this would just be um, could be very devastating to states that are just recovering from a financial uh, the fin- global financial crash uh, and still haven't caught up with uh, the standards that they expect by joining the EU. You can imagine that something that happening in Ukraine could have a great effect. Now, the ability for us, you know, essentially your, your second question is, is really um, about whether there's a toolkit for the EU and the United States to, to do something about it. And, and I think that this is where it becomes really quite difficult to identify a mechanism because ordinarily our mechanisms have been uh, money. You know, I mean, as we can see in the enlargement process, and we can even see um, beyond uh, enlargement in the former Soviet Union, the way that the European community and then the European Union decided to engage with these states was largely through uh, funding big infrastructural projects. Uh, and it was a great way, essentially, to kind of smooth the relationship. That in itself didn't threaten the Russian, uh, the relationship between uh, Ukraine and Belarus and Georgia and others with Russia. Um, but now we're talking about something distinctly different about what the EU and the United States wants. Um, but um, we don't necessarily see uh, an available toolkit um, uh, to, to do just that. Thank you, Professor Galbraith. An interesting perspective there on some of the core issues in Ukraine. Coming up next on The Currency, with record levels of US dollars flooding the world's currency markets, has America engineered the great escape or are we headed for the great anxiety? Stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman, brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Last year, US dollar monetary stock grew by $3 trillion, or 4.6%, an all-time record. To put this in context, a million seconds is about 11 and a half days, a billion seconds is 32 years, and a trillion seconds is 32,000 years. Since 2008, $15 trillion have been created globally. To discuss where this brings us today is Doug Morse, a leading investor based in New York whose family's interests extend from commercial real estate to hedge fund investments. Doug, you're very welcome to The Currency. How solid is the U.S. recovery? Uh, I'd like to think that the U.S. recovery is on on very sound footing. Uh, However, I'm afraid that may not necessarily be the case. Uh, While U.S. equity markets have been on a tear since putting in their lows in March of 2009, I think it's fairly easy to argue that the primary reason markets have rebounded so aggressively is due to the extraordinary QE measures put in place by the Federal Reserve under Chairman uh, Bernanke. Without passing judgment on whether this massive economic stimulus was the correct course of action, one has to wonder how assets that reacted so positively to the surge in liquidity 
will respond when flows head the other way. Uh, as we've seen in the past, regardless of whether the size of the reduction of liquidity is material, um, oftentimes it's the perception that uh, the Fed is moving in the wrong direction that is likely to rattle equity markets, uh, and we may see that in the coming, coming quarters. Do you think markets are then fully discounting this, or what's your sense of that? Um, I think it's very hard to know because the, the magnitude of the, uh, the stimulus, and uh, I don't think we've, uh, you know, we, we've seen quite an appreciation in equities. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that they are extremely overvalued at this point, but they're, they're certain fairly to moderately uh, well-priced. So um, hard to know if it's been discounted at this point. How do you feel about the bond markets in that case? Uh, you know, I, one thing that does concern me is is, the, is how the bonds are, are uh, acting at this point. Uh, they're showing minimal risk of inflation. Uh, you know, something that the Fed has been trying to bring through is inflation. And uh, with the 10-year at 2.7, you know, bonds certainly seem to be telling a very different story than equities. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, one, one has to pay attention to the bond market. And I think this is a cause for some concern. I think I'm right in saying that inflation-linked bonds are very close to selling at all-time lows, according to the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities Index. Are you seeing any sort of wage growth that could spur inflation at the moment? Um, I don't see that at all. And actually, that, that is a concern as well. Uh, you know, we have unemployment, which has dropped down to... Uh, um, you know, a 6.6 level from 10%, which is all well and good, but we've seen very, very uh, muted uh, wage growth. And um, obviously that has a, a tremendous Im- impact on consumption, and consumption makes up a, a large percentage of uh, GDP. So we know that Wall Street is pretty convinced, but what about U.S. citizens? Are they convinced that a recovery is in place? Uh, you know, I'd say the general feeling here in the U.S., you know, notwithstanding the uh, very healthy run in equities and improvement in the housing sector. You know, the, the feeling is the economic environment on Wall Street is is moderately positive, uh, but hardly robust. Uh, you know, in addition, we've had uh, an unusually uh, difficult winter season, uh, which I think is going to be you know continue to be a sizable drag on retail activity. Uh, without a doubt, negatively impact consumption across the country. Uh, so there, there seems to be a, a continued concern uh, with the unemployment levels and. Um, and also with the weak wage growth uh, you know, and consumption. So, you know, I think uh, that people are not overly excited about the current environment, let's put it that way. A lot has been made, certainly over here in Europe, about U.S. energy independence. Is this really going to be another golden era for the USA, or is it likely to get snagged by the huge debt run-up in order to stimulate this recovery? Yeah, I'd say this is a, a very materially positive uh, issue and one that could have a, a, a tremendous impact on the U.S. economy. Uh, you know, lower cost uh, energy and consistent uh, consistent source of energy and energy independence is something that uh, you know will will impact uh, the U.S. economy very very favorably. Um, I think it's a long term proposition. I think there's been uh, you can quote the American Petroleum Institute, which has said that the U.S. could be completely energy independent by 2024. So this is not something that's going to happen uh, imminently. But um, you know, if the U.S. makes this a primary uh, uh, priority, uh, then I think uh, the potential of the, the Keystone XL pipeline uh, and the, the back and shell formation, uh, you know, these are these are very material issues, and I think. Uh, 
could could flow through to uh, you know to help the economy in a major way. The U.S. and China butted heads last week at the G20 meeting in Sydney. The U.S. was saying that China and Germany weren't making enough effort to stimulate global demand by not opening up enough to U.S. business and not purchasing sufficient amounts from the U.S. either. China responded directly by saying that the U.S. needs to make structural reforms as the U.S. economy currently is supported only by monetary policy. That's a view that commentators in Europe have a lot of empathy with. What would the view be from stateside in the U.S.? Bernanke and Yellen seem to be uh, more similar than they are different in their dovish, you know, relatively dovish policy stance. Uh, however, you know, Yellen has recently made it pretty clear that she uh, believes the time has come for Europe and the rest of the world to provide you know, more support to their own banking systems and economies while expecting less from the U.S. Uh, you know, from November 2008 through January of 14, the Fed initiated three rounds of QE to buy $2.8 trillion in bank debt mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. At the same time, the European Central Bank and Bank of, uh, Bank of England also engaged in another $1.4 trillion of QE. Interestingly, uh, almost none of this liquidity was loaned to U.S. operating businesses as private non-residential investment in America fell by 80% as a percentage of total GDP of the U.S. between 2007 and 2009. Uh, you know, while capital spending has recovered somewhat, American business investment is still at the lowest level uh, as a share of GDP since 1947. So, I mean, that is a big drag on economic growth in the U.S. Uh, I think it seems as though Elon is paying more attention to this. You know, and also, one of the primary causes of the Great Recession was clearly the extreme level uh, of leverage throughout the global economy and banking system. While the U.S. has managed to reduce these levels, uh, bank balance sheets in the U- uh, uh, EU are, are still leveraged 25 to 35 times equity. So I think Yellen is refocusing resources uh, on supporting the credit needs of Americans and has now indicated she's no longer willing to have the Federal Reserve backstop risks um, taken by non-U.S. entities. Uh, this, this change is likely to create some uh, you know, fairly meaningful backlash from our European partners, uh, but could well be a positive for the U.S. businesses uh, seeking credit. Do you think that means the U.S. is entering much more of a policy of going it alone, or, or is it just a slight change of emphasis? I think it's, you know, at this point it appears to be, uh, a, you know, a slight change at the margin. And I think time will have to, we'll have to see how this unfolds because we could very easily be entering a period where it's a little bit more like every man for himself. That will be, uh, you know, become a major risk, I think, for the global economy if that is the, the nature of how this evolves. So um, I think it's too early to tell, but uh, you know, maybe this is the first sign that uh, they're moving in that direction. Do you think that Washington has missed an opportunity to implement some structural reforms? I, I don't think I'm alone in, in saying that, uh, yes, in fact, I think that is uh, absolutely the case. Uh, it's been a very frustrating thing to watch. Uh, I think Washington has clearly missed an opportunity uh, to implement structural reform in the U.S., and, and uh, you know, that really leaves monetary policy as the only stimulus uh, to our, our economy. And uh, it's impossible to know how the economy will react as the U.S. has weaned off of this stimulus, um, although given the fragile nature of the economic uh, recovery, um, you know, it's probably likely to be a long time before, before we see any meaningful reduction in this stimulus. Now, bear in mind that the taper um, continues and probably will continue unless there's some major um, decline in, in uh, economic activity. But uh, you know, we're still 
pumping or the, the Fed is still pumping a tremendous amount of liquidity into the, the system and keeping long-term uh, uh, you know, bank rates uh, very low. So I think uh, you know, that, is, that is a big support for the economy at this point still. That was Doug Morse on the outlook for the U.S. markets. Coming up next, she took a lone stand against excessive banker pay. I'll be joined by Dame Alison Carnworth, Chairman of Land Securities and Non-Executive Director at Zurich Insurance Group. Back after the break. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency on News Talk with me, Nick Bullman. In 2008, during the peak of the credit crisis, Dame Alison Carnworth, then a non-executive director at Barclays Bank, stood alone against what she believed to be excessive reward to top banking executives. She is recognised as one of the most influential non-executive directors in the UK and is currently chairman of Land Securities PLC. I spoke earlier to Dame Allison on boardroom ethics, her innovative ideas on women in the workplace, and began by talking about her early career. Alison, could you wind the clock back and tell us about your education, your first business roles, and whether your family were involved in business from the start? Uh, well, I was um, born in Derby, um, which is a, a rather uninteresting town in the middle of England, um, and had a sort of perfectly normal middle-class sort of upbringing. Uh, I went away to boarding school. Uh, I went to university in Reading, and I read German and economics. And following on from that, I decided to become a chartered accountant. So I joined a firm called Pete Marwick Mitchell in London and qualified as an accountant. Um, I then um, decided I'd like to go into investment banking. I was, I was pretty influenced, actually, by a number of friends who had been ahead of me at uh, Pete Marwick, which is now called KPMG. Um, who'd gone into banking and said it was, you know, very interesting. He came across um, some um, very interesting businesses and people. So I decided to take that route. I certainly didn't aspire to become a partner in KPMG or, or, or to uh, become a sort of chief accountant somewhere. So I was looking to get more involved in sort of banking or business. Um, and to get into banking, you basically had to have some sort of post graduate qualification. A lot of successful women say it's difficult to manage family life and business and to get into business in the first place. Did you experience that? Um, I I think, you know, if you're going into uh, uh, banking, um, particularly on the transactional side of uh, advisory work, uh, you, you, you basically either knowingly or unknowingly are giving up a whole side to your life because uh, the hours are unpredictable, the commitments are huge. You know, I'm talking principally about my time at Schroeder's and then at, um, at Phoenix Securities. Uh, you know, the, the environment was so full of buzz and it was all so interesting that uh, you, you hardly knew or I hardly knew of the sort of sacrifices I was, I was making. I mean, I had a sort of perfectly good social life, but I mean, I just wasn't by any means, home every night to cook supper. I mean, that just doesn't work if you have that sort of career. You've been an advocate of a six-year break for women. What are your thoughts behind that idea? What what I'm an advocate of is businesses thinking very carefully about how they want to retain the services of qualified uh, and successful uh, women in their businesses. And and the the six years is basically simply um, an illustration of the fact that it may be six years or even longer before women 
you know, want to return to work. Um, and uh, businesses should keep in touch with them, uh, try to find things for them to do whilst they are at home with young children, um, and, and not sort of, you know, write them off, which I think happens in a lot of businesses because they, they look upon it as slots to fill. So, you know, if somebody's, a lady has left or a woman's left, uh, then they've got to fill the spot immediately and, you know, they can't keep the spot open for her. And it, it's just a wrong mindset. You know, these are perfectly able, qualified people, many of whom don't want to come back to work, but many of them do. And, and um, the cost of, you know, re-recruiting people is huge. So I think businesses just need to be more creative in this area. And do you think that the modern world with internet connections and more and more people working from home can facilitate that? Definitely. I, I really do. I think it, it can certainly facilitate it. You know, with my um, sort of uh, land securities hat on, we've seen how, uh, you know, offices have evolved um, over the years. You know, you now need less space per person uh, in all office buildings now uh, in central London because they are, you know, built um, with much more technology uh, contained um, and people, you know, don't need... Um, you know, offices that are, you know, 20 by 20. I mean, they just don't need that these days. Um, uh, so I, I think, you know, the advent of the Internet and, and iPhones and Blackberries and iPads and that sort of stuff has made it much easier for people to keep in, in touch. And in terms of family life, obviously you were saying that the job you were undertaking at the time was very full on. What sort of compromises did you feel you had to make? And... Do you think these are the same compromises that men and women in business are having to make today? Well, I'm not sure I made any deliberate compromises. I mean, I, I haven't got any uh, children, um, but, you know, I uh, have been married and I now live with a, a partner for, you know, for the past sort of uh, nearly 30 years. Um, I personally know of many women who have, you know, large numbers of children and a, and a, and a sort of legion of nannies um, and manage to hold down really demanding jobs. I don't think that will be everybody's choice. You know, people always sort of quote the people who've got, you know, five or six children and are sort of managing directors in investment banking firms. But, you know, I don't think that would be many people's choice. That's a very stressful sort of and rather over-organised life. More recently, you were a non-exec director at Barclays Bank on their remuneration committee. And you did take a fairly tough stance on executive pay. Can you run us through what the circumstances were and what you feel about bankers' pay in general? What needs to be done going forward? Well, um, the, the situation at Barclays, which, and, and I don't want to dwell on this for too long because I've really said all that I can possibly say on this subject, but I, I know people tend to have um, interest in it. The, the issues that Barclays were facing then, and we're now going back, you know, two years, um, were that the costs um, associated with the business needed to come down because the glorious years of, you know, enormous revenues um, had, um, had, had disappeared. So costs needed to come down. And because remuneration is such a large part of costs in any bank, uh, remuneration needed to come down too. Um, and it... It was clear to me that in certain aspects of remuneration policies at Barclays, people were being paid much more than market and more than they needed to be paid. Um, so I genuinely felt there was room to pair costs, increase shareholders' returns uh, by uh, taking a, a long, hard look at 
uh, remuneration and bonuses in particular. Um, when it came to um, Bob Diamond's bonus, um, it was just so perfectly plain to me that um, the hostility to banks was enormous. He could show a great example and bring a remuneration down at the bank if he waived his bonus and didn't take a bonus for a year. The returns in that year for the Barclays shareholders have been pretty dismal. Uh, so, uh, for me, it was, uh, as they say, plain as a pike staff that, uh, that he should uh, not be paid a bonus. But I was the only director who thought that. Um, others felt, um, you know, uh, Bob Diamond would have taken such a message very badly. Others felt that he was making, you know, good progress uh, and that he needed to be encouraged. Um, I, I wasn't really particularly persuaded by those views, and, but n- neither were my colleagues persuaded by my views. And how difficult was that decision for you at the time? It, it sounds to me that it was a fairly natural decision based on your business experience and the person you are. Do you think that it comes naturally? I, you know, I thought long and hard about the implications of my effectively disagreeing with the chairman of the bank on the subject of this. Um, and uh, I was uh, I, I, I was sort of ill-prepared, perhaps, for the enormous noise that this all uh, eventually brought about. Um, I, I think it is something that it is, that is easier to do, to have a, you know, fairly strong set of views on all of this if you have sat on a lot of remuneration committees and have helped, you know, create and indeed unwind bonus schemes. I don't think it's an easy thing to do for somebody who is not experienced. And you've obviously got to have the sort of, you know, moral courage to do it, to, 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 to think you're doing the right thing. Moving on to the present day, you're involved in some very big global business. What do you perceive to be the big risks going forward? Did we manage the great escape or are we going forward into a period of what I call the great anxiety? Well, um, I think uh, the, the board, when I'm sitting around you know, boardroom tables at the moment, the, the greatest risks that people seem to be talking about are those associated with sort of political interference. Um, that isn't quite answering your question about the great escape. I mean, I think we will unwind um, out of this at differing paces in different parts of the world. I think we will be led, again, um, from an economic point of view by America. I think they'll manage um, the reversal of QE, you know, uh, fine. I think what you're really saying is that there's been this willing suspension of disbelief by investors who are very trusting of government. Governments have become more involved in the management of economy than perhaps business. Are we beginning to see a return to market forces uh, and them reasserting themselves? Yes. I mean, that, that would be very good news um, if we could get back to that position because, uh, you know, businesses at the moment are obsessed with knowing how long we're going to be living with long-term, ra- uh, long-term rates being so, um, uh, so low. And... Um, everybody is, you know, at land securities or at Zurich, you know, where the investment income has suffered from, from the low interest rates or at land securities where we've been privileged to be able to do quite a lot of development off the back of, you know, low interest rates, but nevertheless, rental growth isn't coming through quite as we'd have expected. 
at a PACAR. Where, you know, I'm, I'm on the board of PACAR in the States, which makes trucks. I mean, uh, they're, they're basically waiting for the economy to sort of continue to kickstart. In fact, they're, they're doing pretty well. They're a good lead indicator, I think. So I, I, I think there is normality returning, uh, but nevertheless, the greatest um, risk people see uh, is political interference. I mean, the politicians can just seem to be able to make policy um, on a whim these days, and that can create huge shocks. You were recently in Dublin talking at uh, Trinity College to, I believe, a group of young women aspiring to have uh, various careers in business and finance. What sort of advice were you giving them and what sort of things would have made a difference to your career if you'd had that advice early on? Well, I think um, there are certain personal characteristics which I think are very necessary to be successful in business. I mean, you've got to be uh, determined. You've got to work quite hard. Uh, I think it helps to be pretty fearless, but associate yourself with uh, people around you who will be good at pointing out the downside as well as the upside. Um, and this is the sort of advice they seem to be seeking. Um, it goes without saying that you've got to do your day job well and you've got to get yourself promoted or you've got to have the um, instincts to start your own business. Uh, I, I, I must say, I think if I had had my time again, um, I would have wanted to um, start a business and you know go through the go through a startup and try to you know deliver a service or manufacture something that I thought was going to be very successful. Uh, so that, that I, if you're talking about my regrets, I think those would be one of my regrets that I've never been through this sort of entrepreneurial phase. Well, I suspect that both the young ladies and men listening to you at Trinity College felt very honoured to have you there, as we have today. Dame Alison Carnworth, thank you very much for joining us on The Currency. Coming up after the break, China and the US standoff at G20. The Currency with Nick Bullman, brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. Earlier this month, tensions between China and the U.S. resurfaced at the G20 meeting in Sydney, with the U.S. berating China for not opening up its markets. China retaliated by criticizing the U.S. for its lack of structural reform and over-reliance on monetary policy. So where to now? I'm joined from Hong Kong by Brian Murray, head of economic strategy at AIA Insurance Group. Brian, you're very welcome to The Currency on News Talk. Is the US right to push China now, or do you think the Chinese have a good case to be made as they did at the G20? In, in regards to the uh, global stimulus or in regards to domestic growth in China, I think that the, the issue that the Chinese are, are, are focusing on is a restructuring of their own economy, their domestic economy. And to the extent the United States has a role in that, it's basically a pushback in terms of uh, control of U.S. monetary policy, which is, again, the state is going to um, execute its monetary policy for its own needs. And I think the uh, impact on China is rather limited. I mean, of course, the fear is that if uh, if China reverts from a domestic growth policy to a weakening of the renminbi policy, in other words, uh, an export-driven policy, that could uh, that could affect global trade, could it not? It could, but um, the actual opposite has been happening since 2009. Um, 2009, you basically saw China move away from the export-driven model, and it may have been the result, or probably was a result, of the exogenous shock from the global financial crisis, but there was domestic reasons for China to move away from that model. And 
I'd actually uh, point out that it's actually not really, even in 2008 and prior, it really wasn't an export-driven model as much as it was an investment-driven model. And China's trying to move away from that uh, investment-export model to a consumption, a more of a consumption-based model. That trend was starting before 2008, accelerated after 2009 with the domestic stimulus, and it's continuing. So if you look at last year's numbers, for example, uh, exports were actually a net drag on the economy. And I don't think the recent um, weakening of the renminbi is anything more than a temporary trend that's basically designed to, to, to look at um, hot money coming into China and the expectation of continued uh, renminbi appreciation, which has been a trend since um, 2005, actually. And at the G20, China pushed back quite strongly and said that uh, the, the U.S. really needed to look at structural reform uh, and uh, that the U.S. economy was being driven only or, or, or more by monetary policy. Uh, do you have a view of, of whether that's correct or not? Um, I don't think it's uh, necessarily incorrect, but I also don't think it's a view that's unique to China. I think at the G20, you also saw India make similar statements about that. He had the same concern about the impact of U.S. monetary policy ever since quantitative easing started in 2009. And, you know, if you look at the the record there, there was concern about uh, quantitative easing starting in 2009 in terms of too much liquidity to the global economy. And now there's concern in emerging markets, and again, not just in China, about the withdrawal of that liquidity. And uh, it's just a fact of the global financial system that U.S. monetary policy has a knockoff effect in other countries. And if you look at the other countries around the world, China is actually much more insulated from that, first of all, because of capital controls, and second of all, because of a very strong position in China's um, foreign exchange reserve or its general liquidity. Um, so I, I, I agree that there's some pushback from China in that regard. I don't think it's unique to China, and I don't think it's going to upset the uh, reform uh, program in China. Because as I said before, that started in, before 2008. It's accelerated in 2009 with the stimulus. And now there's a new administration in China, which has a much stronger commitment to reform. So I think you're actually going to see the transition to consumption-led growth start in earnest really this year. And that will also lead to slower growth in China, which I don't think is a negative. I think it's a positive. And some some uh, commentators have, have, have made the point that China has the whip hand in a lot of this relationship because they own so many U.S. treasuries and could, if really pushed, uh, uh, start to to uh, to sell those to uh, to effectively punish the U.S. Do you think that's a possibility, or do you think that's just uh, wild speculation? Yeah, I, I don't think that's a possibility. And actually, the, uh, the premise of that I think is a little bit faulty. The Chinese holding of uh, U.S. Treasuries is actually uh, a net uh, positive for the United States, especially when the United States is trying to stimulate its domestic economy. And I don't think the relationship is that antagonistic. Um, and in terms of the economic impact of, of China uh, making a sale of U.S. Treasuries or U.S. dollar assets, uh, that would actually help to strengthen the renminbi, which would be sort of counterproductive. And it would actually weaken the U.S. dollar, which would help the, the states. But I don't think that's something that China is actually considering or would be in China's interest. And there's also the, the historical record of other countries being in a similar situation, for example, Germany or Europe in the 1970s when the U.S. Treasury Secretary talked about uh, it's our currency, but it's your problem. I don't think that you know, China necessarily has a problem with having too many treasuries or uh, too many dollar assets, but I don't think it's a weapon in any sort of a conflict. On the contrary, I think it's actually a stabilizing force in the global economy. And again, if you look at what happened since 2009, China's holding of treasuries has actually been a fairly, um, not just treasuries, but all U.S. dollar assets, has been a fairly constant, and it's been a stabilizing factor in the global economy. Going back to the uh, the Chinese economy itself, you mentioned earlier that a slower growth rate isn't that uh, isn't that much uh, of concern. But uh, what do you think about Chinese growth rates? Are they slowing rapidly, or, or or do you think it's sustainable? 
um, they're slowing, but not slowing rapidly. So in 2012, you had the same growth rate you had in 2013, 7.7%, which is a slowdown from you know 10% before the financial crisis. And I would actually argue that you're moving from you know higher quantitative growth to slower qualitative uh, growth in the sense that they're moving, uh, again, towards a consumption-driven model, and they're trying to move up the value-added chain. And there's lots of reasons for, for trying to do that. But if you just think of a, you know, an economy in general and a boom and a bust cycle, if the government is uh, actively trying to slow the economy rather than have an exogenous event cause a crisis, that's a, that's a net positive. And again, there's a, um, demographic reasons. You know, China has a one-child policy for 30 years, and the labor force is actually um, starting to shrink. So there's reasons why they want to move up the value-added chain, and there's sorry, value-added chain, and there's reasons why they want to slow the, uh, the economy. But we're not talking about going from uh, you know, over 10% growth to under 5%. We're talking about a very, very gradual change, or as the Chinese refer to it, a soft landing. And I think that's going to happen this year. I think growth is going to come down, but it's going to come down to closer like 7%, not, not necessarily below 7%. And again, I think that's, that's positive. It's not a rapid deceleration in growth. It's a controlled deceleration in growth, and it's an attempt to affect a structural change in the sources of growth in China. Interbank rates just recently, and in fact in the last week or so, uh, Shibor and uh, the Shanghai uh, interbank rate uh, itself have been rising. Um, there have been issues uh, with the shadow banking system. How much of a cause for concern is that for investors, and can it be controlled? Well, the second part of the question is easier. Yes, it can be controlled. The same thing happened last last year in June when Shibor shot up, and that's actually part of the effort of the Chinese to slow the slow the uh, the economy more generally and basically look at credit growth and basically try to slow the, the credit growth in the economy, which has been uh, very high since 2009. But the credit boom from 2009 to uh, recently was actually again an intentional policy to counteract the slowdown that came from the export sector and from the global financial crisis and to stimulate domestic demand. And similarly, this effort to uh, restrain bank lending and, and slow curb credit growth is also part of this, uh, this larger plan to slow the economy. So I think it's actually not a concern for investors. It's, a, it's actually a net positive, similar to slowing the GDP. In fact, slowing credit growth is actually how you, you move about that. And so when you saw the Shibor shoot up in June last year, it went back you know, I think it was a very temporary period, maybe a, a week to 10 days. And then it came back down again, and it was uh, more stable. And again, you had the renminbi weaken last week and, and Shiwar go up, not to the same levels. And it's, again, it's an indication of where policy is moving, and policy is moving towards slowing credit growth. And if you look at bank lending in terms of the growth rates, it's come down in the last year from you know, just over 15% to just above 14%. And if you look at that in terms of, you know, month-by-month calculation, that's a very um, soft landing. It's not an abrupt turnoff of the credit spigot, and it's also not, um, you know, continuing to have high credit growth and, and, and risking some sort of a, a bubble inside the economy. And with regard to sort of Chinese foreign policy, there have been an improvement in relations with Taiwan with a recent meeting and then a deterioration of relations with Japan over the disputed islands in the, uh, in the East China Sea. Do you have a view of, uh, of where China stands, what it's trying to, to do in the, in the region and uh, how it might, might all uh, play out? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I don't like the sort of ca- you know, characterization of China as being somewhat aggressive in its uh, foreign policy. I think that the focus in China is very much on, uh, on, on domestic economic growth and actually stabilization. And I think to the extent that these uh, territorial issues come up, um, 
these are you know long uh, seated historical uh, you know differences over uh, islands with Japan or with the Philippines, and I don't think they're they're central to a you know an aggressive policy uh, stance on the part of the Chinese. On the contrary, I think they're probably getting more attention because of the uh, the economic uh, changes that are happening in China. But in, inside China, I think the focus is very much on economic growth and, and, and the structural transition. I don't see um, either the Japan or the uh, the, the Philippines uh, island dispute as something new or something that's uh, particularly worrisome. Thank you, Brian Murray, head of economic strategies at AIA Insurance Group in Hong Kong. Well, that's it for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed the first outing of The Currency here on News Talk. I'll be back next Sunday at 6pm. If you'd like to contact the show, you can do so by emailing thecurrency at newstalk.ie or tweet us at thecurrencynt. Until next Sunday, from me, Nick Bullman, farewell and take care. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years.